uh, Steve and I, when we talk about cultural organizing, we're also looking to this imaginative space, right? It's just, oh, okay, it's, we know the current world isn't exactly what we want, right? But, right, it's when we only get stuck in um, uh, critiquing the current political world and not spending any time of, ooh, what could this look like? Ooh, what could that look like? Right? It's, um, uh, you just um, spiral into this, um, yeah, negativity. And that could be a black hole, right? Because there's no, there you can spend your lifetime, several lifetimes in, right, in that space of just feeling uh, disgruntled with how everything is going. And I think that's, what creativity can do. It's not just about criticizing things that we don't like, but creating visions, alternative visions of the worlds we want to bring into being. Want to do it? Ready? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, y'all, welcome to Friends for Life from Auburn Seminary, a podcast for friends who give us life and with whom we are in it for life. My name is Mackie Alston. I am a documentary filmmaker, a queer dad, spiritual activist, and I, one of my favorite things about my life is I am a bestie, a beloved, and a devotee of Lisa Anderson. There you go. I love it. I knew you were going to say something like that. It makes me so happy. <laughs> so my name is Lisa Anderson. I am a black queer theologian. I believe that loving blackness is the spiritual calling of our time. I believe that the lived experience of all black people is sacred text. And Maggie Alston makes my heart sing. So this is our fourth episode, y'all, and we're getting we're 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 we're, we're getting our rhythm. Uh, but we again, we always want to hear how we're doing, and what's most important to us is to be in real relationship with you all, bringing folks that we believe. Uh, might uh, engage you, might uh, guide, and might inspire. So tell us how we're doing. Yeah. This week, we had the opportunity to sit down with two wonderful human beings. Uh, Steve Duncombe is the professor of media and culture at New York University and author and editor of six books six books at the intersection of culture and politics. I like to say, cause he'd be writing cause six books is a lot. Steve is a lifelong political activist, a co-founder, a community-based advocacy group in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which won an award for creative activism from the Abby Hoffman Foundation and is currently co-founder and research director of the Center for Artistic Activism a research and training organization that helps activists create more like artists and artists strategize more like activists. One of Steve's books actually was sort of the book of the decade for me about 10 years ago, his book, Dream Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy, which lifts up the ways in which both progressive organizing and organizing on the right have used creativity to change the game. It's both a a celebration of what we've done right, but also calling us in or up to bring our our strongest creative game. Mm. Because sometimes that's not how we play. 
So Steve's bestie uh, is Patricia Gerardo, who is the board chair for the Center for Artistic Activism that Steve is one of the leads on. Uh, Pat is an executive coach and lead strategist at Leadership Matters Consulting, working with organizations committed to social justice and making the world better. She is a trained MSW social worker and has done 30 years of service to the social justice sphere and to many, many movements. Part of that work is in philanthropy. She served as a program officer for Open Society Foundations and the Ms. Foundation for Women, get this, (laughs) granting over a quarter of a billion dollars to folks in movement around the world. She's also, something that's really important to her, is participatory budgeting. She's an advisory member to the Participatory Budgeting Project. Mm, I love that. I love moving assets for for good. Um, This week, like every week, we start off our program uh, asking our folks four grounding questions. Who has got your back? Where do you go to feel better? What song is getting you through? What flavor delights you? And then we ask a few deeper questions. What strategic counsel do you have for leaders of faith and moral courage so that they can survive, thrive, and win in 2020 and beyond? Win in 2020. That's hard to imagine, but we talk about that. We think about that. We dream that way. Our next question is, can you tell a story of when we have won in the past so that we can remember that we are only here today because of the victories of our ancestors and earlier battles for liberation. And finally, we end with the question, what is a joy practice that is getting you through these days? Thanks y'all for being here with us. Uh, We love you. (laughs) In our 20 or so years through Auburn and before have had the incredible joy of being in it together with you. So again, we want to hear from you about how we're doing and how we can be of service. So email us at friends at auburnseminary.org and tell us how to make it better. Okay, no prep at all. What good is it going to do us? It's not going to do you any good. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So Steve, here's the question. It's for you and for Pat. Which means Pat gets to go first. The question is In these times that we're living in, in this historical moment, who's got your back? Wow. Mm. Okay, I'm going to say the first response that comes back to me is my family's got my back. And I really count on that. I also have friends that got my back. And they're a particular type of friend. And you know, I'm looking at Pat right here, but I'm also looking at Mackie. I'm looking at you, Lisa, who are political friends. And we have had to have each other's back for years and years and years and years. And it's, it's a feeling like, yeah, those people have my back and they know what that means. Can you say a little bit about what that means when you say they know what that means what does that mean because part of being an activist is that you're you're ready for things to go really bad (laughs) things can go badly all the time and you know i'll be really blunt is you know 
you can be taken into a police cell and the person you're being an activist is taken to do another police cell and they get to try to get you to incriminate the other person and you really got to know that they are going to say absolutely nothing um, and that you're both going to walk out of there okay. And that's an extreme example, but I think in the back of all our heads, people that have been activists, as I know, you know, we have since 18, 19, 16, 17, that that there's a you're trained for that and you're sort of trained to to back people up sometimes even people who aren't even your friends but are just the people you're working with in an organization and you know that's what solidarity is about and so that solidarity is kind of built in naturally to the family but i think amongst political friends we learn and then we have a culture of it it's part of our cultural heritage mm. Mm. i see i see you smiling so broadly pat <laughs> yes, I'm loving this. Um, I mean, ditto, 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 everything Steve just shared. Um, yay. <laughs> uh, so who has my back in that? Um, my, definitely my family, um, you know, has my back in that. Um, and yeah, my friends, my networks, right? Um, and I will add to that, I think, my experience and my um, perspective, if I were to do that out-of-body thing. I think, right, having lived this long and through so many um, uh, crises and um, just, right, being on the left for as long as, as I have been, right, and, you know, uh, and just seeing so many different uh, things happening, it's like I have a body of experience that I rely on, right? Um, and I would say also having other people's backs is mm-hmm. also important to me, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. not just my back, like I know I can lean back on people, but I'm also supporting people. And that makes me, yeah, that gives me purpose. and makes me feel good too. You said a couple of things that were really compelling to me. Um, both no one has named themselves as having their own back. Mm -hmm. I, I find that feels like a uniquely black woman kind of thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) um, Given the historical reality that we've lived in since 1619 in this country. Um, So there was that. I'm a believer. Just saying. (laughs) Can you say a little bit about you and Steve, maybe a little bit about your friendship? Because you both named each other as having each other's backs. What is that? What's, can you give us a little sense of the character of that? Do you want to go first, Pat? Do you want me to go first? I'll let you go first, Steve. Oh, damn. <laughs> you got my uh, back, right? <laughs> well, see, so, so, so Pat and I met 10 years ago. Um, yep. And I think one of the reasons we hit it off really quickly is we recognized in each other that... Um, Yes, we were interested in left politics, particularly we were interested in left cultural politics. Um, I had just written a book about kind of culture and politics. Pat was running this organization, um, which was trying to fuse culture and politics. But I think, and I'll just, I, we've never talked about this, so I'm just going to put it out there, is I think that we both recognize in each other is like, this isn't our first rodeo. Um, that we come from a deep culture of the left. Um, we had both been organizers and activists for you know 20 years, 20 years before we ever met. And so there's kind of just a shared sense of 
We don't have to virtue posture in front of each other. We can talk about silly things like our love for rom-coms and, uh, and things like that. And because it's okay, it's okay. You know, this is why I go thrift shopping with Mackie. Um, as you know, for example, is, uh, he's wearing probably one of the suits we bought. Um, is because we can be silly and we can have not political loves and interests and passions because deep down we're deeply political and we know we're going to be political to the day we die. It's not a flash in the pan. So I think that I recognize something in Pat, you know, very different background, African-American woman grew up in, you know, in New York city. I grew up in new England, white, you know, religious, uh, son of a preacher man. Um, and, uh, you know, so in that ways, we don't have much in common, but we had the culture of the left to lean on and kind of that sense of instinctual, I think the word I used before was like solidarity. <laughs> yeah, I would add uh, to that, right? It's both the love and criticism of the left that I think kind of uh, we shared, right? Because it's, um, right, especially, you know, 10 years ago, right, to be able to have breath for talking about the, you know, the less serious stuff, right? It's just like, it's yeah, 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 we read our Lenin, yeah, 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 we got our marks, and did you see what happened on Friends, right? <laughs> <laughs> to have that breath, right, of um, uh, being able to um, both not always uh, be dogmatic, um, which is so stifling and not fun. And I think it's also, right, uh, Steve and I, when we talk about cultural organizing, we're also looking to this imaginative space, right? Yeah. It's just, oh, okay, it's, we know the current world isn't exactly what we want, right? But, right, it's when we only get stuck in, um, uh, critiquing the current political world and not spending any time of, ooh, what could this look like? Ooh, what could that look like? Right? It's, um, uh, you just um, spiral into this, um, yeah, negativity. And that could be a black hole, right? Because there's no, there you can spend your lifetime, several lifetimes in, right, in that space of just feeling uh, disgruntled with how everything is going. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things I always I love about Pat is that she, it's immediately about yes, this is what we want, as opposed to no, this is what we're against, mm -hmm. right? And it's that, and there is a part of the left which is very much about we're against it, um, but there's also a part of the left which is exuberant and and phantasmagorical and you know and wears sparkles and you know and that's that's I think the place that both you know Pat and I occupy and I think you know I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up Pat about culture is like culture is one of those spaces um, in which we get to experiment in which we get to play right. about what would a world look like and that can happen in strange and odd places it can happen in a dome sitcom like friends you know well, what would a community be like that's not based around biology where people take care of one another um, right. it can be an advertising advertising is, is unabashedly utopian most of the time right mm -hmm. um, and these are kind of bad expressions I'm not that much of a friend of friends I just got to say Pat um, but, but, it, but it is one of the, but it is one of those places where we get to get a glimpse of 
popular desire. And that's right. what we were both interested in that, is that we weren't interested in, we love art, don't get us, you know, right. at least, it, but it was popular desire. It's like, is it popular? Because then that says it speaks to people. Right. And that was, it was one of, right, uh, the things I noticed about the left uh, and the cultural left, right, is that, right, the success of the left, right, in developing alternative culture, right, from theater to books to zines to, right, it's just like you could be totally ensconced in that and be fulfilled in just that alternative world, right, but there is a larger world, right, so the organizer in me is like, okay, but not everyone's going to see, right, that particular, um, uh, you know, uh, alternative theater piece, right? How, what's, what's playing, right? What's playing on Broadway and what are people connecting to and how can we connect what we're doing with what they're doing, right? It's, it's just, it's, it can be so fulfilling being in your niche space, right? And it's also a safe space for a lot of people. So do not want to take that away or deny that in, in any way, but it's, right the role of the organizer is not just to be right uh in the safe space right it's just like right harriet tubman didn't find you know the promise land and just say okay i got here (laughs) forget you guys right it's like you're always trying to bring people back right and forth and so it's it's that translation uh that is is very um uh rich um yeah I'll leave it there. No, I mean, that's, I think that's totally right on because it's an organizer's job is not to organize people who think like you. Um, you know, it's, it's to organize people that don't think like you. You know, one of the things that, particularly with young activists, you always have to say is, hey, it's great that you've mobilized yourself and your friends. Um, now we got to get up to 51% of the population um, and find crossovers. And guess what? 51% of the population probably, you know, watches American Idol or The Voice. Um, and so what is it in The Voice? that people like. By the way, I do like The Voice. I do not like American Idol, but The Voice is one of those utopian spaces in which literally people care for one another and they get to showcase their talents. They have their backstories and then their triumphs. It's an amazing sort of vision of what a caring society should be like. And they get to sing. Um, but in any case, I digress. I digress. Okay. That was the heart of it. <laughs> All right. Second question. <clears throat> we believe we've only asked one question so far. <laughs> and you may get the sense that these first, this first round of questions, there will be two rounds, is really about uh, how we feel better in terrorized, terrifying time. Uh, in the work, during the work, in this, when that's going on just all the time, where do you go to feel better? Where do each of you go to feel better? I have a guess for each of you, and I want to know if I win them. <laughs> I've got a new one, Matthew. <laughs> so I'll go first on this one. Uh, so physically where I go, and I'm very fortunate, I do have a backyard here in Brooklyn. Mm. <laughs> you knew that, Mackie. Um, and never thought, right, I grew up in, you know, grew up in the Bronx, 70s, 80s, New York City, uh, crazy. Never thought I would become a gardener. Um, I, yeah, my garden is my happy place. Um, and yeah, I go there to, 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. That's, that's definitely my, my first place of going to feel, yeah, feel good and feel connected, touch the earth, touch the ground, see my plants grow, weed. Yeah. That, that's for me is, yeah, the best part of, um, just, or I should say one of my best practices for when I feel like most well, actually, when I feel both um, overwhelmed and when I already feel happy, right? It's just like it, it's that place I could go to no matter what. If you had asked me six months ago, it's different, a little different than now. Six months ago, as Mackie knows well, I have a passion for going to thrift stores. <laughs> um, and I'm not talking about resale shops. I'm talking about, you know the goodwill salvation army up to my high level of housing works. Um, I love clothes. I love thinking about who wore them before me. I love browsing through them. I love the idea that you never know what you're going to find. And most of the time I walk out having bought nothing. Um, and I love the idea that just around the corner might be, Oh my God, did you see these boots? Look at these things. They're amazing. Um, so I love that. And very much I love walking to the places. I love walking in New York City. I love seeing people. I love making up stories about them as they walk by me. I love just the concentration of people. I even love being on the subway um, if it isn't hot and smelling like urine. Um, it's so... And that's changed since the pandemic. Um, they have opened the thrift stores, I'm glad to say. But it, people are a little bit more wary of each other. And we don't get to see each other's faces because of the masks. And so um, it's changed. So here's what I did all this summer. Um, I went fishing. Ooh. I went fishing in the morning. I went fishing yeah. in the night. Sometimes I'd go in the middle of the day. I'd go to the ponds. I'd go to the ocean beaches. I'd go to the bay beaches. Um I hadn't fished since I was 12 years old. My mom used to take me fishing, um, just something that dropped off. And I totally rediscovered the beauty of being there by yourself for an hour and a half. Sometimes you catch fish, most of the time you don't. <laughs> but it's an excuse to notice like the snapping turtle, which has its morning rounds that goes by you. Um, and, you know, seeing the sun go down over the bay. I mean, it's really beautiful to the point of I go fishing in Central Park Lake now, which is not as bucolic as a beach in Cape Cod. Let me tell you that. But there's snapping turtles. There's snapping turtles and there's... These carp, which look like they haven't evolved since the, the age of dinosaurs, um, and so for me, it's it's very much an escape. Uh, you know, it is so clearly an escape from the chaos and the kind of unfolding apocalypse of our present mm. times. Yeah. What I love also, Steve, is that you listed multiple, right? And that is true. I think it's, right, in order to survive this and happy places, we need multiple, right, mm -hmm. uh, places of feeling comfort, uh, especially because we're being jutted against um, uh, so often that being yeah. able to relax in different places. Um, and yeah, walking in New York City will always be, right? Even during quarantine, even during lockdown, that was still solace to me. Because um, I love, like, one of my biggest pleasures is being able to walk in the street. Mm -hmm. I, it's without cars and just being able to walk down the street. I just, that gives me such a thrill 
Um, and yeah, during uh, lockdown, that was like one of the things that I got real pleasure in. And bicycling on the street with no cars. Mm. I feel actually, and I've been telling this to my kids who have a very completely different experience of New York City than I did, um, because I moved here in the mid 80s, um, you know, and, uh, you know, Pat, you were talking about the Bronx in the 70s and the 80s. And I'm like, hey, guys, you can get experience of New York in the 80s, both the bad part, which was the rampant crime, but also the beauty, which was more emptied out streets. People are just painting like yeah. going and all of the, you know, the boarded up buildings, they're just painting and the police aren't stopping them because they're on semi strike because they're angry about something or another. And they're like, good, stay there. Just stay on that semi strike because now you can actually hang out. You can have a beer out on your stoop. It's almost like the pre Giuliani quality of life campaigns where, yeah. and part of that was, I remember, you know, riding down the center of the street because there just weren't as many cars in New York City. Yeah. Um, so that there's something beautiful about what's happened to New York is it's things have slowed down. The right. hyper-rich have left. They're off in the Hamptons. Um, just it feels like my memories of New York when I was 17 and I moved here. Yeah. Here, oh. here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What I'm loving about this conversation, I moved to New York in the 80s as well. <laughs> and I remember... All of those things, and it wasn't until both of you recalled them that I see that returning to the city right now. Mm -hmm. All of the street art in Harlem on the boarded up buildings and nobody is making it go, go away. The fact that the streets are filled with folks because of the way the restaurants are open who are just kind of drinking on the street, <laughs> um, uh, it, it's really kind of powerful um, yeah. to remember when it wasn't quite, when it was a little more gritty. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So what song is getting you through? What's the sound of now for you? Oh, wow. Ooh. These sound like Pat's questions. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Um, it's funny. I've been doing a lot of music during this time. And speaking of the 80s, one of the things I did <laughs> is I compiled um, a playlist of Hall and Oates. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. You're killing me. Blue-eyed soul. Ouch, 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 ouch. <laughs> I love my Hall list. <laughs> It is right. So I, I just went back to like everything that made me feel happy. Right. So, um, and this was since like the lockdown, right. Since quarantine. So I was just like, Oh yeah. It's just like walking New York city like that. As a kid, I walked all over. I would go from start up in the Bronx and I would head down, uh, walk over Fordham to, um, Inwood, then go all the way down, uh, to Central Park, right? It was just, I loved, loved, loved walking the city and I still love walking, um, the city. So like walking was something I did, but as I was walking, I was putting together all these playlists, right? And, um, just going back, uh, I did, um, uh, Fleetwood Max album. Um, and then, uh, my mom was a big classical music listener. Um, 
And so, yeah, so I, I would do that because I'd had like great childhood memories uh, for me, even though I always made fun of her <laughs> as a kid when she was listening to it. And now I say, oh yeah, this is just like the most calming, uh, uplifting, you know, uh, touch your soul kind of music uh, that there could be. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I've been doing, yeah, like a lot of eighties, a lot of music. It's, it's been across the board in terms of what I've been listening to, um, Depeche Mode, ABC. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, music has, yeah, music has been critical, um, in, yeah, in this period. I think you just listed every single artist that drove me to punk rock. <laughs> What is your favorite Hall Oates song? Oh my goodness! How how to even choose? Um, well, always love Sarah Smile. Um, oh, that's a good one. Smile. When I feel cold, You know, that literally that was the music which drove me to, to punk rock. Um, you know, it's, uh, but the funny thing is now I can listen to it and be like, yeah, that's not so bad. Yeah, that's not so bad. And in fact, I had these students once who did an independent study with me. They were DJs. Um, and they would come in with their set list every single week. And I'd make them research the history and the sort of, you know, the musicology or whatever it was of the, um, of the artists they were doing. And they were really into African pop. And I was really into African pop at that time. Um, and seventies African funk, they're really into that. And one day they came in and they were like, Professor Duncan, I don't know if you know these people, but they're incredible. We, we just, we did, we just discovered them and we, you know, we put them on the dance floor. We, you know, we, we, we put it on the turntable and the dance floor just explodes and they start playing Hall and Oates. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh no, really? Um, anyway, back to, back to your question about the, the song, the song track of the COVID crisis. So um, right before the COVID crisis happened, um, I bought a turntable and, and um, started to, me and my son, who now plays bass, my younger son, um, he is really into Tribe Called Quest. And so we did a lot of Tribe Called Quest and we started to, to listen to vinyl together. Um, and, but we only had like eight albums before everything shut down. <laughs> so, so his favorite album is Tribe Called Quest. My favorite album that I grabbed in that one week period before everything shut down was Sly and the Family Stone. And so every, Everyday People is it's one of those songs that it's just... You know, it goes back to the idea we were talking about in New York being sort of emptied out of the hyper-rich um, and the people where it's their third home here. And, you know, the, I love everyday people. And just mm. coming back to that refrain. Um, so I can, I can listen to that over and over and over. And I have to because we only have like... <laughs> <laughs> now things have opened up and we're getting some more. 
can't even tell you what a delight it is to see you all laughing so much mm. and to see your love for each other and also as we talk about these things joy in your faces in a time in which joy is just the most necessary precious and you know soul saving way to be so thanks for being that way with us right here and right now the next question I have uh, in this regard, and I hope it delights you, is what are you finding delicious right now to put on your tongue? What oh, flavor delights tongue. you? Ooh. What flavor delights you? Oh, wow. Huh. Okay, so two things come to mind. One, um... I'm a vegan, uh, but I've been doing the Beyond Sausage. Um, that is just so delicious. Um, and so that with some olives, a kale salad, ooh, that's been, yeah, um, like doing a, a very great uh, taste sensation um, for me. Yeah, that's like the one thing that came to mind when you asked that, Mackie. It was just like, oh yeah, kale salad with the sausage on top. Vegan sausage. A plant-based sausage. Um, that's been really delicious. Do you eat what you grow, Pat? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. So uh, I have a blueberry bush and a raspberry bush. Those Ooh. came out earlier. Um, and then I... Um, grow so much basil and I've been doing a vegan pesto, which I add to like everything. And then I have um, tons of herbs, right? I'm just, you know, as my daughter says, you really becoming a witch. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. I'm just like, oh, here, drink this. I'm always giving her teas to drink. <laughs> I love it. Let's hear it for the witches. Yeah. <laughs> the tasty witches. <laughs> Steve, what flavor delights you? Um, you know, I, I was thinking about that because um, there's so many. And one of the great things about coming back to the city after not being for three months is the flavors. I mean, mm. Pat, you know Cape Cod well. Yeah. The flavor, there's only one good flavor, and it's fish. <laughs> every, every, lobster. Or lobster or clams, which are all good, but, you know, anything else, there's nothing else there. Um, and everything else there. And to come back and the first day, me and the kids and Jean were like, we want Thai food. Real Ooh. Thai food. <laughs> then the next day, <laughs> we're going to go get Cuban food. Real Cuban food. <laughs> so part of it is just being back in sort of a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural society and being like, oh my gosh, it is the, just the flavors that we can experience, that we're lucky enough to experience mm -hmm. in a cosmopolitan place like mm -hmm. New York. Um, but I'm going to be really concrete. Um, I'm holding up in a little espresso cup. And um, I stopped eating sugar when I was about 18 um, because it makes me really tired. Um, and once I knocked it out, I realized I had so much energy. And I've started drinking espresso and putting sugar in it. Um, and boy, is it good. Like the mixture between that bitter, bitter of the espresso and the sweetness of the sugar. Oh, it's worth, <laughs> it's worth any sort of crash I'm going to have. <laughs> so that, that would be one of my tastes. That's funny. The flavors you're willing to savor 
uh, even though you know you'll pay the price. Yes. Well, isn't that always true about, or often true about <laughs> the things we <laughs> we really love? Is that sometimes they there's a cost attached to them, and you know sometimes <laughs> it's worth it. Oh my God! That seems to define the moment. That seems to define this moment. It's like, what are the trade offs? What are we willing to to do in order to hold on to a sense of joy and oh a sense of us? being fully alive human beings mm. when so yeah. much is out there that would rob us yeah. of that sense that we're sensual, we're alive, we have bodies, we have longing and desire. Mm. So I, I think the image of that little sugar that you're putting in that cup. <laughs> the, the sweetness and the bitterness. <laughs> so this next batch of questions is... I, I don't want to say a little more serious, but maybe a little more serious. Um, So we have an election coming. What? I know. (laughs) And um, many people have characterized it as the election of our times. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've got folks listening on this podcast, a variety of kinds of folks. We've got... um, faith and spirit-rooted organizers. Um, We've got traditional brick-and-mortar clergy types. Um, It's a progressive group of folks. And we ask our guests every time, what are your reflections? What do you have, what have you got to say to our people, our left communities? as the election comes up towards 2020, this 2020 election season, however you want to understand that or frame that. Um, and I have to tell you, every time we ask this question every week, because things are every month as things are changing so rapidly, I feel like we're in a different world every time we ask, ask the question. <laughs> yeah. um, so however you want to um, enflesh that question, and we're here for you. We're here for it. Mm-hmm. The first way I wanted to answer it was to go back to something that Pat and I were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, which is if you grow up on the left and you've been on it a long time, you know that you're still going to be fighting 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And so, yeah, this is a really, really bad time. I remember when Reagan got elected, that wasn't so pretty. I remember, you know, going to war with Iraq, that wasn't so good either. Um, now this does seem existentially different because it seems like we're seeing the end of democracy. Um, and, um, but, uh, we will persevere, we will get through, and we will keep fighting for next 10 years, next 20 years, next 30 years. Um, And then I thought about faith. Um, And some of my friends who are much more God people than I am, my relationship to God is like relationship to aluminum siding. If my dad sold aluminum siding, you know, I grew up in a religious family. It's all around me. It's part of me. I know my scripture, but I'm not a deep person of faith. Um, but I'm surrounded by people of faith and I've been really heartened by their faith that things aren't going to necessarily work out. Um, because that's not what faith is about. Okay. It's that things will keep going on 
they will keep going on, that life will keep continuing. There will be joy. Although I forget the, the, the phrase from the Bible, but it goes something like, although everything seems so dark right now, we will wake up and there will be joy. Um, and yeah, that is going to happen. We will, there will be joy. It is dark right now. It is probably the darkest it's been in my political life. But then I think about all the people I work with around the world, um, because I work with a lot of activists around the world, and Patricia has as well. And boy, things have been dark in all of their countries, <laughs> really dark. Um, and so in some ways, you know, we're just coming up to speed. And they get through it, and they fight, and there's always another side. Mm-hmm. Well, you sound when you say that it's a falling away of a kind of American exceptionalism. Yes, yes. And I think particularly as a white middle class guy, I just assumed that I make plans and they're going to work out. Right. <laughs> that, and my family can make plans and they're going to work out. And I think the radical unplanning um, is new, certainly to people like me, but it's not new to a lot of people in America is not new to most of the people in the world um, of, you know, not knowing how things are going to turn out. And if you don't know how things are going to turn out, you got to have faith. Pat, what are you thinking? Um, right. My immediate response was like, you know, every election is important, right? And also elections, voting is just one component of being engaged and involved, right? It's, we have elected slave owners, right? We have elected um, uh, uh, white beaters. We have elected, right, a, a lot of people who've done terrible things in the world. We've also had, you know, uh, a system of injustice, um, that still has not prevented people from working to make this a better place, right? That doesn't that doesn't become the obstacle to say, oh, we give up, let's just go, right? Let's just forget it. Um, we can never bring it down to the individual is the problem, right? Because it is a systematic problem. And it's also calling for systematic engagement, right? And which we all need to do, right? And the beauty of COVID also, right? In terms of cultural shifts, right? To remove us from this, such a concrete way of removing us from this primary role of being a consumer. I mean, that's like one of the shifts. I was just like, whoa, right? It's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> right? To see it, like the engagement around BLM, it was just like, right? Because what else do we have to do? We don't have to distract it by anything else, right? Um, that it's, right? That is where I'm finding joy and hope is that, right? Is that our engagement has just, you know, quadrupled in in this period and yeah a lot of people have been pushed into it but a lot of people have run towards it right and it's we're all in this moment where we're just paying more attention right and it's a consciousness that is right it's it's leading me to hope right because it's right being invisible is right is the biggest superpower of those in power 
right? It's just like they love their invisibility because that's where you get to, right? Do the best part of manipulation. Um, and, right, their biggest spokesperson at this moment is someone who cannot be invisible, right? Still, <laughs> 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 he'll tell us everything um, um, because he cannot not be on camera. Um, but I, I think, right, that both heightens our sense of, oh my God, this country is under turmoil. There's so much problem there. But it's also, okay, you wouldn't be paying attention to this unless we had this, right? Mm -hmm. Unless we had the spotlight on the craziness that was going on, right? So it's, right, it's that invitation to engage that I get excited about. Yeah. I just and I, as Pat was talking about, it's exactly. I mean, you just put your finger on it, which is the problems are so visible. Even if you wanted to turn away, you can't. And right. I, I think there's a very good chance coming out of this, we're going to have um, socialized health care. Um, uh, no one's talking about repealing repealing Obamacare anymore. Um, right. I think that there's a very good chance we're going to have more women and people of color in positions of power than we've ever had before. Um, I think that there is a sea change. I think that people are going to start rethinking policing um, in right. a very serious way. And, you know, police have been doing this for a long, long time, so it's nothing new, right? It's right. just that you cannot turn away from it at this point, and it's going to force force yeah. us to reckon i mean it's that moment you know was it back in the 30s where they said it's going to be socialism or barbarism um <laughs> we're kind of there right in two years we moved from right police misconduct to police violence right and now the debates right are whether to use police terrorism Right or police violence, and that's huge. In uh, the latest Vogue, they use the term police brutality. Yeah. Right, and that's a sea shift. Mm -hmm. Vanity Fair did a big thing on defunding the police. <laughs> well, it reminds me of the phrase Adrian Marie Brown said: "It that things are not getting worse." they are being uncovered. Mm. And, I, and you talked about pulling back the veil. So the rest of her phrase is, we have to hold each other tight as we continue to pull back the veil. And, it, and so I think about all that you've been saying in line with what it means for this idea of American exceptionalism to fall away. Mm -hmm. And this idea that actually these things that we think are brand new or that we're just seeing. I love Pat when you said, yes, the, the, the leaders have been slave owners. The leaders have been um, brutalizing women. It's not like this, this is a newness, but there is a sort of lining up where you cannot look away. There's no place else to look. And so what does it mean? And I think this is apropos of the title of this podcast about Friends for Life. What does it mean to create the possibility of holding each other tight and not mm -hmm. leaving each other alone as we do this hard work of pulling back the veil and yet saying that there needs to be joy and like all of those things inside of that. Right. And this is where I find, right, is especially within the left where the faith community can really provide 
right, the space leadership support, right, in in terms of this growing, right, because it's where do you hold each other, right, and, um, right, just that concept of um, holding forgiveness and accountability, right, uh, that is within so many uh, faith practices that I think in secular left work isn't as um, developed, right? It's just like secular left is much easier to go into cancel culture, right? It's much easier to dismiss, right? Because it, it has this dogmatism uh, to it. So if you're not the way I think you should be, right? I cut you out, right? And there's no, okay, how do we grow together, right? Because there's no way that we could be the human beings that we envision in this perfect utopian, um, right? Because to be that human being, you have to have lived through it, right? And grown through it. So there isn't as much space to grow and make mistakes and be vulnerable and, right, be real with each other um, in secular leftist culture that I find in many faith-based cultures that are just, you know, more open to, oh, you made a mistake, let's, right, both, how do you hold yourself accountable to that, and how do I see you as fuller than the one action that you just did, right, right? or the 25 actions that you did, right, it's just like, where, where is that space for that? Yeah, sin and repentance is a nice thing, and, and Pat, Going back to, again, looping back to one of our earlier conversations about activism and organizing, I mean, I think part of that left culture, the cancel culture, is the culture of activism as opposed to organizing. Mm. Because with organizing, you have to make room for people's messing up because yeah. you need them there the next day. With activism, you go in, you do your demo, and you're out. And it's all about the performance, and it's about your expression, and I'm angry, and you're seeing how angry I am. And it's about, it's very egotistical, whereas organizing by its nature has to be other-directed. Exactly. As to organizers, I know, you don't, you don't even know their names sometimes, um, but somehow they've brought all these people together and then they disappear. So, so many of the people who have tuned into Auburn and Auburn's leadership development work have done it on behalf of their folk, have done it so that they can be the kinds of organizers, faith rooted, spiritual, whatever, who uh, can be a blessing to movement instead of a curse. <laughs> and so in as much as our listeners, at least we hope, are these kinds of folks who are thinking, I've got this crowd, this congregation, this community that I am hired or at least a member of and hoping that we can show up in this critical time you all are the experts when it comes to, as you all said, thinking about vision, employing imagination, and then uh, uh, strategizing as to how we can bring our, our, our most creative selves and all this kind of joy and delight into the streets or into the, to, in ways that might uh, shift and capture the public imagination for good. 
just yesterday I was right here on this block and Nick, my husband and I were walking down the street and we heard a, a ruckus and it was another roving group of Black Lives Matter, in this case, Black Trans Lives Matter uh, activists. And they were spectacular and there was dance and there were gowns and we joined and we, and, and off we went. And it was that one of those magical moments actually in life mm-hmm. that's that something so irresistible, beautiful and fun could be suddenly on your block right. and you can just go with the flow. So my question for you all is uh, what should we be doing now? It's, it's October. We got a month. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of folk. How should we be showing up? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Mackie, um, particularly the and beyond, because I think that the situation feels so dire right now, and it is so dire right now, that we tend to focus on what we're against, what we want to stop, because there's so much we need to stop. But particularly past the election, we need to really focus on things that we're for and things that we want to do. And I think that one of the things we've learned at the Center for Artistic Activism is this is where creativity really comes into play. So here's an example. Um, About six or seven years ago, we were asked to go to Macedonia to work with LGBTQ and Roma rights organizers. And it was a really, really tough time in Macedonia. Um, There was a right-wing Government, horribly corrupt, vehemently homophobic, anti-Roma. The people we were working with, their uh, uh, LGBTQ center had been firebombed about a month previous, and they were really, really, really pissed, understandably pissed. There was so much to be angry about, so much to, to just want to just, you know, raise the middle finger to. Um... And one of the things that we do in our workshops is the last part of the workshop, the five-day workshop, is within 24 hours, we brainstorm, build all the props for, and execute a creative action. And the first thing we do is we do the brainstorming. And immediately, people went to the negative. Um, They were so used to being told, you have no part in Macedonian society, that their immediate reaction was, well, if you're going to tell us that, we don't want to have anything to do with you either. So go F yourself. Um, Again, very understandable. But in a way, as we talked about that, it was playing into the hands of the right-wing opposition, that they were marginalizing themselves just as the people in power wanted to marginalize them. And so we rethought, what could we do differently? And instead of going negative, we went positive. We went radically positive, utopian positive. And we decided, instead of talking about what we were against, we were going to perform a vision of the world that we were for. We were going to create a new Macedonia. Now, Macedonia um, was not allowed to call itself Macedonia at that time um, because the Greeks kept objecting that Macedonia was in Greece. So they had to call themselves the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. So we turned that on its head and we created this fictive world called the former Republic of the Future Republic. No, the Future Republic of the former Republic of Macedonia. And for about four hours in the most popular park in Macedonia, we created a new world. We had a border guard with a border uh, a border um, patrol 
that wore hearts and would welcome people in gladly, and people would clap every time someone went through the border. We had a new passport, um, which didn't have a gender binary, but instead had a graph, and you could actually, you know, mark in where you are on the whole sort of spectrum of gender. Um, We talked about love. We had food. Um, and at the center point of it, we had these pedestals. One of the things the right-wing government had done is build all these hideous statues every place, and predictably, all the statues were of big-muscled men and large-breasted women that were heroes of some mythic Macedonian past. Instead, we built a pedestal and had people fill out signs that said, said hero and heroine in Macedonia, and then they put in who they were. So it would be, I am a hero teacher, or I am a heroine lover. And they would stand up on this pedestal and get their pictures taken. Um, And over the course of about two or three hours, we had 500 people come, which people were afraid to come to LGBTQ and Roma events. Um, People showed up that would have never shown up to an event like that, partially because they were just attracted with this is the ideal of Macedonia that we want to bring into being. Um, so it was an incredible event. And the beautiful thing was, is within three or four years, and I'm not saying there's a direct correlation, there was a colorful revolution that brought down this right-wing government. And it was led in part by artists who would splash paint every place around the city and brought that sense of joy. And I think that's what creativity can do. It's not just about criticizing things that we don't like, but creating visions, alternative visions of the worlds we want to bring into being. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And it made me think of, um, first of all, our work that we've done together, Steve, Mm -hmm. um, with black trans women, um, black queer communities in Atlanta, but I have a quote, right? And the book is from Octavia's Brood. And listen to this. Whenever we try to envision a world without war, without violence, without prisons, without capitalism, we are engaging in speculative fiction. All organizing is science fiction. Organizers and activists dedicate their lives to creating and envisioning another world or many other worlds. So what better venture for organizers to explore their work than through science fiction stories, through utopian stories, through stories of the world that is not yet? Um, I love that, and I love what you're talking about, because I just think we need the utopian, the vision that is bigger than we could imagine in order to be able to make the world that we want to see. Right on. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love the idea of speculative fiction. And you think about what Jesus did. Well, a lot of what he was doing was speculative performance. The idea of sitting down with sinners, tax collectors, um, sex workers, the idea of sitting down and sharing meals with the undesirables was a way of performing that in the future, this is going to be God's community. It may not be in the present. But in the future, these will be the people that will be welcome at my table, um, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And, you know, taking those ideals and whether you put them into science fiction or you put them into performance allows a way to people to feel the future, right? Not just think about it intellectually, but feel it affectively and experience it. And in so doing, it creates the desire for a future. Right. I love it. I love it. 
I want to hear about, but Pat, where, where are you inside of this work? Cause I know you're in there. Yeah. Um, and, um, you can't see me. I'm just smiling, <laughs> uh, at the recollection, right. Of, of, uh, the Macedonia action and also right for the center. Um, and what Steve just lifted up, right, I, I think is the importance of creative activism, right? And I always talk about the importance of creative activism within the entire ecosystem of everything that needs to be done, right, in order for change. So we need people working on policy reform, right? We need researchers delving into um you know, uh, uh, the questions and, uh, um, you know, finding out the answers and doing polling. We need, you know, uh, historians, uh, right, uh, telling us stories of the past that we can learn from. We need, right? So it's, it's all part of an ecosystem. Um, what I love about uh, the Macedonia example and so many examples of the work that the center does is, right, it breaks down what we mean by creating creativity, which, you know, a lot of people, especially if you're not engaged in the work, can dismiss it as being frivolous or, oh, let's just go out and make some posters or let's, you know, um, you know, uh, have a soundtrack or let's write. Um, and the example that Steve uh, shared with us is really uh, highlights, you know, the discipline that needs to go into this work, right? Uh, the work that's involved in, you know, being able to not only understand uh the political situation that you're in, but have the breadth and space to um, right to uh, articulate it, to be able to work through it, right? To be able to have the space to, you know, have people uh, lift up their ideas, which of course are going to start out as negative because right, we are who we are right, as progressives. And we're going to lead with that, right? We see things that we don't like and that's why we're drawn to this work, right? That change is, is mostly around the change of uh, wanting to, you know, um, uh, right the wrongs that exist that we see, right? So it's that discipline of uh, being able to bring people together, hold that space for them to uh, be able to articulate, right, what they're seeing, and then how to move it in a way that actually we can reach people um, in that space of joy that Steve spoke about, right? Because we're not going to reach, you know, um, uh, you know, as many people as we need to in that negative space, right? And then it's the areas of experimentation, right? That also happens within creative activism, where we have this openness, right, um, for putting out the ridiculous, right? <laughs> or putting out the, you know, uh, what we haven't seen before in order to capture uh, people's imagination, capture their attention, in a way that we haven't before, right? And we have more wiggle room as people who want to make change within creative activism than you do, let's say, in uh, policy work, right? Which um, is is more limited in um, in their experimentation. And actually, you know, our you know comrades who are doing policy work, I don't want them to experiment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, creative activism to experiment. Right. Um, uh, right. 
Um, so, and then it's the, you know, um, also, uh, Steve story, uh, didn't talk as much about the review and learning, right. That also is part of the, you know, uh, training that the center does as well, but it, right. It is that breaking down that taking, you know, what did we do? What was the response, right? Research is a big part of the center as well, which, uh, Steve leads up. Um, and it's learning, right. It's the concept constant learning and the picking up, right? So the Macedonia um, action, right, while not directly related, but, right, picks up on work that, um, uh, Lisa, as you said, right, that, uh, you know, the center's done with you um, in Georgia, that the center's done in North Carolina, that the center's done in South Africa, right, right, so in Texas, and it's it's always picking up and learning, right, and it's that review that also comes into creative activism, so that's, uh, I wanted to add that, because there is, right, a lot of uh, components to it um, that, you know, when we get to those uh, public demonstrations, you know, there's actually so much work that's gone into and that will follow up. So Pat is actually kind of the unspoken co-founder, one of the unspoken co-founders of the Center for Artistic Activism. Um, it was a project that myself and uh, uh, an artist, Steve Lambert, you know, we're kind of playing with, to be honest. Um, and I had a meeting with Pat and she was like, you know, you should, you should, teach some of these lessons. This is interesting. Why don't you give me a proposal, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she gave us a ridiculously low amount of money. It was insulting, but it was just <laughs> enough to get us going down to North Carolina um, to do our first workshop. But I realize now, Pat, that what you were doing is, at that time, you were running the Democracy and Power Fund, and that you had all these other types of activists working in it. You had policy people. You had people doing more election more direct mm -hmm. action and other things. And we were part of that kind of mix, your portfolio in a lot of ways. And I think that's super important that not everything needs to be creative, uh, creative activism. And to the masterminds like Pat, benign masterminds, I would say, <laughs> in this case, you know, understood that there was a place for us and helped us um, develop this sort of language of artistic activism and methodology of artistic activism so it could work with other forms of activism. <laughs> and it was funny, that was actually, and uh, just for clarification, everyone, I was working at uh, Open Society Foundations. This wasn't my own personal money. Um, <laughs> um, and those were fun times. I, I, yeah, I had a portfolio, right? I had uh, DC think tanks in my portfolio. I was... Um, uh, I had uh, some of the research groups. I had uh, some of the di direct action groups like Ruckus um, in a portfolio as well. Um, and then I had um, uh, what I call cultural organizing, which uh, included for me as well, um, I, I expanded that into faith uh, organizing as, as well. So I had that in my portfolio. So I have faith groups, uh, faith organizing groups, um, as well as tech groups as well as, um, uh, and then uh, more creative 
uh, activism. And it was this hodgepodge, right? You know, the stories um, about creative activism uh, and what people are doing, you know, even when you're not involved with it, it just opens up the space in your body. You know, you just breathe and say, wait, you did what? <laughs> right? And it's just Absolutely. that kind of, right? It's, it's Absolutely. Right? It's knowing about that that just makes us all broaden up in in a way that we hadn't imagined. Just makes me feel differently about you know my specific work that I'm doing within this larger goal of making change and building peace and love and right uh, freedom for peoples throughout the world. I just know from my personal experience that it opened up more space for the wholeness of the people who were doing the activism, who were involved in the activism. Um, For the people who were witnessing, most definitely. But there's the one story I remember when we did our church flash mob, um, and it was when our uh, trans leaders, we borrowed, um, because we did ours in a church, we borrowed, um, what do you call them? choir robes mm-hmm. and remember that mock choir that we made up when the church when the when the trans church went into the into lesbian and gay black church mm-hmm. and what our leader said when they put on those choir robes they felt like they were superheroes like they could do mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. and you know, just just you know, there's so much power that comes from these things that we that we these these practices that we think of as just ordinary. But when you think of black trans leaders putting on choir robes and and, and becoming this mass demonstrating um, community who were saying we're here. We are saving your lives and our lives together, and this is ordained of God. And so when they put on those robes, they were making that kind of declaration. That meant that they were seeing themselves differently, and that meant that that community was seeing them differently. And I believe that it changed something that we will never go back on. One of the practices that we've been exploring here on the podcast is to tell stories about when we've won, so that we remember that we're winners. Mm-hmm. So in your own lifetimes of activism, or in the study uh, and training that has informed your activism, what story reminds you that we got this? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, there are so many stories. I mean, especially, you know, I'm trained as a historian, so I can just rattle on. As Pat knows, we go back to Moses, then to Jesus and the prophet Muhammad, and then so on and so forth. Um, but um, I'm just, this is something that came to mind when we were talking earlier, is don't forget that eight years, was it eight years ago, 12 years ago, we elected a black president of the United States of America under a banner of hope and change. Um, and that this country looked very, very different. And 40% of the people hated his guts. And 40% of the people felt threatened and that their ways of life were going to disappear. Um, I remember there's a great speech by FDR where you know he's running for the third time. And he says, you know, essentially... 
40% of the population hates my guts and I welcome their hatred. Um, and to understand that we're really not talking about an entire country which has gone batshit crazy, okay? Um, it's a very, it's a minority that was always there and they grabbed power. But there was also a majority of the population who voted for not the progressive execution, but a progressive vision, which Obama um, promised. And that, that is a victory. That gives me hope. I will go with a, a, a real world one that I'm involved with right now. Uh, so I volunteer with participatory budgeting uh, where um, it's around the country, but here in New York City, we get to determine um, uh, how public dollars are spent in our community. And in progressive New York City, uh, right, they use COVID as an excuse for not continuing with um, participatory budgeting this um, this upcoming year. Um, and my local district, my neighborhood, uh, we decided to go with it on our own. So we're gonna do our own in our own district and make sure that we keep this alive, right? It's just, it's, yeah, it's, you're gonna find that, right? People in power want to take away your voice, no matter what, you know, whatever adjective you want to put in front of that government uh, is. And it's really always up to you to step up to um, participate and right and uh, take hold of that power. Um, so I'm loving that we're doing this and that we're doing it on our own, which also opens up the space for us to imagine, okay, what do we want the process to look like? So, right, because we've had to abide by the city uh, rules for so long, but now we get to determine just in our district what, how we want to see this money distributed. So really excited about that. Um, so our final question to y'all is, um, how do you practice joy? Um, if you have a practice that you, that you'd like to share, that's fine. Um, so that our listeners could maybe, uh, copy what you do, but it's not necessary that they be able to do that. Uh, we like to leave our folks with a sense that joy is, an intention and a practice and it just doesn't emerge out of nowhere um, but that it is a practice of our communities uh, for justice so what's a joy practice <laughs> I love that question um, so yes it's a practice I, I think there's also Right. For me, I found there's also an orientation and I do get that for very much. Right. I, I've always described myself. I'm not a half a glass, half empty or half um, full. I'm I was always since a kid. Oh, my God, I have a glass. Yeah. <laughs> I can fill it with stuff. <laughs> How amazing is that? I don't have to use my hands. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just like I've, I've always had that like innate appreciativeness of um, that I know not everyone has that orientation. And um, so even with that, right, I, I get overwhelmed, I get depressed, I get, right, um, what am I doing? I'm just such a loser. I'm just, what, right, what's going on? Um, so even with that orientation, that isn't everything. So yes, uh, practices, um, 
uh, do um, uh, work and uh, make it easier, right? So a practice that I do is when, uh, especially my mind is is going to that you know overwhelming space. Is that I just bypass my mind and go into my body. So mm-hmm. that could be through dancing, right? Um, it could be through deep breathing, also, right? And just uh, so I use both. Uh, those are like my go tos um, for just like moving. Yeah, like moving my body, uh, walking without. Uh, yeah, it's just. Right. It's um, yeah. When when my mind is overwhelming, I just go straight to my body. I always just mm-hmm. went, okay. How can I move my body and just forget about my mind, right? Because my mind's going to do what's going to do, and then as long as I have my body, it's just like my mind always will um, uh, um, like play second fiddle to my body. So if I'm dancing. Right. As soon as I start dancing, then my mind just it says, oh, OK, <laughs> it's like we're just going to move with this body and it, it quiets down uh, immediately. And I find that also when I do deep breathing. So when I also do deep breathing. So if I'm on a subway and just don't want to dance at that point because uh, right, I'm in public, like I'll do deep breathing. And I also find as soon as I get to like listen, like put my body um, first. Uh, and then my mind kind of um, uh, moves towards that. And then that can get me to that joy space. Mm. Mm. That's great. That's beautiful. Um, I love that you said orientation, Pat, because I, I think so much of it is we're, you know, you can walk down the street and you can look at everything that's terrible. And sometimes when I'm depressed, I'm just overwhelmed by like the anguish and pain and ugliness of the world. But I can also walk down the same street and notice a whole bunch of different things happening. Um, and so a lot of it is to me about that orientation is, do I want to go through the world looking for joy or do I want to go through the world looking at how horrible it is. Um, I wish I had a practice to figure out how to kind of move myself from one to the other. And I like this idea of the, the body in some ways and kind of short circuiting the brain. Um, I think I'm going to, I'm going to try some of that. I think for me, a lot of it is when I find myself looking at all the horrible things, just to spot something which isn't terrible and to see that little beautiful thing um and it's really easy when you're in nature it's a little harder when you know you're walking down a street and you see people who are living on the street and but you can find it and just to see that and find it concentrate on that and then you can look back to the horror um but i wish i had a better way because there's a a, a, (laughs) I'm going to try dancing a little bit more. Laughing. <laughs> laughing is really good. Just finding things to laugh about and laughing with people. Um, I think that works. Right. And laughing is breathing, right? So that's the beauty of it, right? It's just like you're just like breathing deeper when you're laughing. Mm-hmm. And then that helps alleviate all the tension. I hadn't thought about that. That's mm-hmm. great. One of the things that moves me about both of you that I've experienced is an incredible generosity of spirit. And I don't know whether it brings you joy, but it brings a lot of other people joy. (laughs) And honestly, hanging out with you, Pat, I remember when we were in Minneapolis together, (laughs) 
going out and laughing, <laughs> stories until the cows came home. And, you know, we didn't know each other that well, but right. it's like we were, you know, at a sleepover and friends for life and just sharing stories. And then ever since then, I've just felt like, you know me and I love you. And Steve, oh. <laughs> Steve, Steve is one of these dudes who like, he sees me and sees how I'm trying to look fine. And he's like thinking to himself, don't I have something in my closet that would make that outfit? <laughs> and then the next time I see him, he'll come out with a tie or a pair of shoes that I can't believe he actually wants to get rid of because they're so nice. Well, what's he keeping? Because this is my best. But it gives me such joy to see me. you wear them, Mackie. Yeah. That it really does. I gave Mackie a hat, a cap, well, like two or three years ago. And every time you show up in church with it, I'm like, oh, doesn't he look oh, good in that? That's the best. I love it. This is my first time meeting Pat, and I'm very thrilled. I'm very thrilled, and I'm feeling a little bit like I can't wait until um, we can make our pods a little bigger. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I'd like to go out. <laughs> go out. I did. I have to say, though, that I did watch one of your podcasts before we got started in preparation. It was one of the it was the one that you did with Linda Sarsour when you all went and got your name. Ah, so much fun. <laughs> so even though this is the first time I've met you, Pat, I have seen I have seen Silver Toes. And, um, and there was a line that you said in the podcast that I love so much about longevity being your act of political resistance. Mm -hmm. You're going to live a good long time. (laughs) And that was an act of political resistance as a black woman. And I said, oh, I love that. (laughs) I I love that so much. And Steve, I'm so happy to see you again. I know. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. But you know, since we did our last event in Atlanta, I'm sure Mackie told you that we did... um, Sojourner Truth Leadership Circle did a um, a cohort with Black trans women, mm-hmm. and so several of the women that we met when we did the creative activism work with you um, and Steve were um, in that cohort oh, that's and great. are a part of of Auburn's extended family now. So that's we all to met hear. through that experience. That's great to hear. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just oh. want to name Lisa that that's a story of organizing with a beginning, middle, and end, but that reminds us that there is no end and that mm-hmm. there are things keep growing, like in Pat's garden. You know, they just grow mm-hmm. and they grow as, as we stay in, stay in it for life. Yes, absolutely. If it were not for that, we would not have done. We would not have met those women. We would not have met Raquel Willis, who did the first podcast that we did um, for this podcast. And we met Raquel through work that we did with Steve in Mm -hmm. Atlanta. And so it's just, it's, it's just about organizing and creating communities. And I, so I really love the distinction you made between organizing and activism Mm -hmm. um, because it just talked, it just spoke to the value and the quality of relationship. 
So we end our podcast every time saying words of love and um, and sort of a, I guess a benediction of joy um, that um, the author is Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> so Mackie and I are going to say this to you and imagine just just showers of blessing come mm-hmm. upon you as we say these words. If ever there is tomorrow when we're not together, there's something you must always remember. You are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. But the most important thing is, even if we're apart, I'll I'll always be with you. you. We'll always be with you. We'll always be with you. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Wonderful friends. Yay, we did it. And to a time where we can do this in person. Absolutely. I'd be up for that. Rocking some hollow notes. Oh no. Oh no. Well, yeah. Hollow notes is not my favorite either. No, yes. Thank you, Lisa. So beautiful people, that's our show. For show notes, episode graphics, or to donate to this work, or for more info about other Auburn programs, please go to www.auburnseminary.org forward slash friends. Please follow Auburn Seminary on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And again, we want to hear your thoughts. So email us at friends at auburnseminary.org. It was a joy to be with you, Mackie, as always. Um, And I am so excited for next month. So excited. It's Halloween. It'll be Halloween next month, too. This show was produced by Auburn Seminary and is made possible by the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation. Thank you, Carpenter. Friends for Life was produced by Mackie and me with additional support from Courtney Weber Hoover. Yay! Aaron Groves. Yay! And David Beasley. Graphics by Claudia Lopez. Those are some good-looking graphics, too. Mm -hmm. Always. Audio engineering from Dan Greenman (laughs) and and Courtney Weber Hoover with editing from Courtney, Mackie, Lisa, and David. Thank y'all. We love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. Come say hi. Hi.